Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Father, thanks so much for this time tonight, and thanks for this day, and pray that you teach us, Father, as we study your word, that we may understand it. Thank you so much for the fellowship we can have together in this class, and the joy we have in spending time in your word, in Christ's name, amen. Mac friend. We left off in uh, Acts 19, talking about the seven sons of Sceva, and again, I think this is one of those... uh, you know, if you get to heaven, there are certain replays you want to see, video clips. This is one of them I'd like to see. Um, this demon-possessed man beating up these seven sons and running them out of the house naked. But what you see happening here is, of course, this this is really, if you want to think about it here, this is the high point of the miracles that you see from Paul. This is like the high point of the time. All right? Um, if you would actually go and graph, you know, the number of miracles that Paul did with time, you know, it, it, it'd go up and then it just like sort of drops off. All right. And where you're at right here in the third missionary journey in Ephesus is really the high point of those miracles. And what you see, probably the reason you see this is because what what was Ephesus really the center of? Well, it's pagan worship there. In fact, we're going to see that here. Um, not only that, but demonic forces were very much present there. Because it says here, um, in verse 17, the seven sons of Sceva incident hit the papers of those days. And uh, it became well known to both Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Fear fell on all of them. Um, By the way, the center of pagan worship. Just, I just, it just hit me. I was reading late ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. Tars, Tarsus was the other uh, college town. Sometimes, you know, when you get older, your memory starts failing you, you know, you forget places and things. Um, and then this is interesting. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. What deeds? 18. 1918. Their sins. Their sins. Particularly which ones, do you think? Witchcraft. Because that says also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. 50,000 pieces. How many pieces of silver was Christ sold for? 30. This is a lot of money. Um And actually, the the note in the authorized John MacArthur Study Bible indicates that this was a day's wage. One piece of silver, one day's wage. So so do your math. 50,000 days wages is is the number of, or the value here. And of course, back then, you understand too, why? You had to copy them by hand, right? 
printing press like that. So it was very boring to make a, a book. But they brought their magic books and had them burned. 50,000 people, the word of the Lord grew mightily. And a couple of things that come out of this passage, which is interesting, I think, to stop and to really get a, is when there is true conversion, what goes along with that? Change. Repentance and change. Right? That's very important. That's a very, very, very important thing to get. Whenever you see somebody truly redeemed in the Bible, truly born again, there is a change in their life. What happened to Zacchaeus? He gave all the money back. And what did Christ say? Today salvation has come to this house. You know, he believed. What we have in America today is a belief without action. You can believe anything you want but your actions don't need to back it up. All right. What we have done is we've disconnected, at least in our postmodern culture, we've disconnected what we believe with what we do. So you can say one thing and do something totally opposite, and that's okay. That's perfectly acceptable in our society. There's a disconnection. You can believe one thing and do something else, and it's okay. It's fine. It's totally acceptable. Look at politics. I mean, there's a total disconnection there. You can say one thing and be something else, and that's okay. Um, that's not the way it is with Christianity. I mean, what you see these people doing here is one of the first things they did when they confessed their sins is they burned their books. It changed their life. There was a change in their life. It's interesting. Um, John was, MacArthur was talking about when he went to Russia um, and preached there at, at the end of every service. Hey, who wants to repent? And people who are converted of their sins, public confession and repentance. Today, we, we want to do stealth, stealth evangelism, right? You want people to come to your service and be saved and not realize what happened to them. Sort of sneak it up on them. You know, and how, you know, you, you're not to ask them to actually walk down the aisle and, and make a public affirmation. You know, that's too, you know, it might be too humiliating for them. Look, folks, you know, if you're truly born again, ain't going to bother you. You'll go for it. You'll, you'll do it. You, you make a public affirmation. And that's really what Christ is saying. If you're not willing to confess me before men, I'm not going to be willing to confess. Of me before men, I'm ashamed of you before the Father. Um, it it depends on what you mean by an altar call. I have nothing. I have nothing wrong with an altar call. I I I'm not one of those who believe that every time you preach you need an altar call. They're they're appropriate places for them. I'm not against them. I am against the um, the manipulative altar call. I was in a church um, where they had an altar call and they sang about 40 verses. It felt like 40 verses of just as I am. 
then the preacher made everybody sit down because he knew someone was there needed to come forward. So, you know, I'm sitting there thinking I might well just go forward to get everybody out of here. Go home. Yeah, it was a Baptist church, you know, and it's people. And all opportunity to respond. By an altar call, I'm going to coerce people, and I'm going to drag them. What's wrong? Altar call. Grandison Finney. Charles Grandison Finney, one who came up. The Holy Spirit do it basically. That was his thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I, I I believe Christ gave people an opportunity to respond. You know, and I think we need to do that. No problem with that. I don't think it should be manipulative. Stealth. Stealth. The idea of Yeah, it, it's sort of like I, I'm, I'm trying to ex explain. It, it's the super secret sensitive kind of thing where, where, you, where it's like you're trying to sneak up on them with the gospel and snag them before they know what's happening. You know, no, you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. You don't want to be obnoxious or, or anything like that. But, you know, you, I, probably the best example of this kind of manipulation is uh, a few years ago, we had a group of our men, I don't know if you went, um, Washington to the Million Man March or whatever it was when, with the promise keepers there. Well, there's some guys that went there in the church, went to the Million Man with promise keepers. Um, yeah, it was, it was about six years ago. It was in Washington. James Ryle a message, gave a gospel presentation, then asked if anybody, you know, prayed the prayer to receive Christ to raise their hands, and the guy said, everybody raise their hand. And I'm thinking, you're telling me all of those guys were unsaved? No. No. I pray it every time I hear it. No. It's the first time. But, but, but the point is, you know, if any of you received Christ raised... You know, if that's manipulation, because what if you're the one guy out of 40,000 around you that don't raise your hand? You're mobbed, right? That, that's coercion. That, that's not the way it works. You know, God, God calls you. You're going to stand up. You're going to make a public affirmation. You're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to run and hide. You're not going to, you're not going to be, you know, there might be a little bit of that trepidation walking down an aisle, but, but. You're going to do it because you know, you've changed. You're different. You're not the same old, same old. Is it true purpose or definition? Reason? Just give people. I mean, it's basically.
basically like a bank ticket. You're you're making a public. Yeah, really, what it is is it's it's an opportunity for those who want you know prayer, want to talk, want to talk to someone about salvation to come forward. Wrong with that, you know. Where it does become, I think, a little shady is when you use that as manipulation and try to manipulate people into to coming forward or try to force them to do that. Or like kids, I mean, you know. At the end of Bible school or you know. Bible yeah. Do There's a lot of kids have thrown pine cones in the fire that are not near a church today. You know. Now there are some that are. You know. So so it, it's. All I'm, all I'm suggesting is when you look at the scripture, Christ gave people an ch- opportunity to respond. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So, but he did not manipulate them into coming after him. Yeah. Didn't he believe he could compel without the Holy Spirit? Yeah. But, but that was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what if he did compel people with the Holy Spirit? He just didn't realize it. Did he end up compelling people? His, his style, he was, he was an odd kind of guy. Um, he, there's some stuff written on him out on the, the, that's interesting um, to read. He denied original sin for one thing. Um, so if you deny original sin, then you're not corrupt. You're just sort of messed up. You're a little, you know, you've made some bad choices. But he felt that being a lawyer, you know, from a legal background, he could make a sufficiently compelling case. That he could save anyone. Oh. Yeah. Because if you're not depraved, you don't need the Holy Spirit, right? right? I mean, where the Holy Spirit comes in is that you are dead in your trespass of sin. You are dead. And the only way for you to even understand the first iota of spiritual truth is that God has to regenerate you. To turn the light on so you can understand it. But if you're not dead in your sin, you're not, you know, under the curse of original sin, he felt he could talk you into that. So he denied original sin. So is Finney in heaven? Or is he was he so off base that That's a good question. <laughs> that's that's a good question. That's a good let me see. See in heaven. <laughs> I don't know if he is. Original sin. You know, I believe if I remember reading a couple of years ago, you know, he was constantly on his knees and, and begging God for forgiveness you know, of his sin. He's not. See, that goes back to, and you know, beyond the scope of our discussion here, but you know, how much theology do you need to know to be saved? You know, do you need to have an orthodox view of original sin? Well, did anybody hear sin when you No, you knew you were a sinner, right? But some say, you know, now, do you know about your original sin? You sort of like look at them with your, you know, like a deer in the headlights. I don't know. Um, you know, but, but there does come a point as you progress in your spiritual life where certain, I think, key truths should come to light. One of them is, I, I do believe very strongly that an understanding that we are born in is a pretty foundational thing to believe. I mean, that's pretty foundational. Because if not, you can 
kinds of directions. But anyways, back to the passage here. We'll never get through Acts. Believing in original sin isn't one of those egg marks that either says you're in or you're out. No, you can be muddled on a lot of theological things and still be born again. Um, because none of us are theologians at the moment of salvation. We wouldn't understand it if we could. You know, there's some people that haven't sorted it out after, you know, years of being in the faith. They haven't sorted certain things out. Um, but you do need to know that you're a sinner and that you've offended a holy God and that there's forgiveness there. All right. Um, and there needs to be a change. That That's the key here, because there, there are some in Christianity that say you can be a Christian and not have a change in your life. You can take Jesus, it's the old Lordship salvation thing. We've maybe bannered around here back and forth. You can you could take him as your savior, but forget this obedience and lordship business. I don't want to buy into that yet. But I want I want to get out of hell. I'll take the salvation. Um, that's not the way Christ operated. He didn't say, you know, take me for salvation. We'll talk about, you know, actually following me at a later point. You know, he told people, if you're not willing to forsake everything, don't bother. You know, if you're not willing to forsake father, mother, sister, brother, don't don't come after me. If you look, put your hand to the plow and look back, I don't want you. You know, he, he doesn't want half hearted. People and that goes back to the relationship aspect, right? I mean, if, if you know, if you women in here, if you had a man who said, I want to marry you, but, you know, I have three or four other women on the side. How would you feel? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd you feel? You know, or you know, like like a man. You know, you, you know, you ask your, you ask somebody to marry you, and she says, "Yeah, I'll do that." But you know, I got five or six other boyfriends, and you know, I'm going to stay, keep it seeing. You know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I like the idea of being married to you. The, the, you know, the security, you know, the financial security. But you know, don't expect me to actually live with you. Don't expect me to actually cook dinner for you or do anything. You know, I'll just do my own thing, you know, and, and Christ, you know, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. And these people burn their books. They change their lives. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit. What things? Well, after a period of time. Now, how long was he in Ephesus? That's Corinth. Oh, two years. Two years. Oh, two years. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. All right, where is Macedonia? Greece. That's northern Greece, right? Where is Achaia? That's southern Greece, right? Where is Asia? That's Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. Remember my, my horrid my horrid little map. Sort of like this. Okay. This is Greece. I can't. I, I you know those people say, you know. Pick this thing up and draw it. Forget it. I'm dead. I can't draw anything. Um, but this this is Achaia right here, right? And that, that has to do with 
Athens and all of that. And then you got Macedonia, right? Up here. And then over here is Asia. Okay. So that's um so what is he doing? He is um leaving Corinth, you know, and, and making his way slowly back towards Jerusalem. And about the time there arose a great commotion about the way. That's in, the way. What's the way? Christianity. Okay. Not what Victor Paul Weirwell came up with. The way international. This is Christianity. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together the workers of similar occupations. And men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. What do you know about the worship of Diana? Right. It was, it was a, yeah. Um, Artemis is the is is the other word. Diana is the I think the Latin and Artemis is the Greek, or it's the other way around. I think it's the other way around, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the uh, temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world, which of the ancient world, which means it was a massive place. Um, it brought them a lot of money. To Ephesus. I mean, you have people from all over the world coming to Ephesus to see this temple and to take part in the um, part in the, the pagan rites there. Um, and you know, when you came there, you got the little the little silver images of Diana. And of course, in those days they didn't have mass manufacturing; you made them all by hand. And so the silversmiths who made a lot of money by selling these things, making and selling these things, what was happening to their trade? Going away. Starting to go down, right? They had a drop in sales. And why did they have a drop in sales? Yeah. Because of the evangelism. Because of the evangelism. People were turning to Christ. All right, now, now, now implied in that is what? what? What can you draw out of that statement? How many? A lot. In other words, what you see here is Christianity is starting to have a non-insignificant impact. And it's one thing to have, you know, a dozen people here or there become Christians, big deal. But when you start seeing the bottom line start getting hit, like these guys evidently were, it's more than one or two Christians. It's a lot. And they made their livelihood by this. I mean, this is how they made their living. And uh, by the way, the, the actual goddess here was a. Someone said it was like a. It was a meteorite that had fallen. It was a gross-looking thing. Um, this was not the beautiful, gorgeous woman you see in the movies. 
this was something totally out of, totally not that way at all. But it was a cult center. It, it had to do with, you know, the ancient Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. She was one of the pantheon of the goddesses. Um, and she was the goddess of love, of, of, you know, um, fertility goddess. And of course, those are very, very popular religions, aren't they? You know, um, and started hitting them. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They started having a riot. In other words, Demetrius worked all these people up into this riot. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord having seized Gaius, the Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling <coughs> companion. So they found, they couldn't find Paul. They found a couple of these guys and dragged them down to the, so it's here, the theater. Now they actually found this place. Um, they dug it up. There's a, there's a straight, there's a tree, street called Straight. And it's a straight street. <laughs> And it goes through Ephesus, and they followed it out of the city, and they, they found this large amphitheater that this thing would, you know, hit outside the city. And this is where they went. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not let Paul was going to go in and talk to them, but the disciples would not let You just got a riot on your hands. Now, what's the other problem here with the riot going on? Well, nobody will listen, but what else? What's, Romans don't like it. Romans really don't like those things. They get really nervous when you have riots. And if Ephesus is a free city, which it was, they're in danger of having their status revoked. This is a very serious situation for the rulers. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and Muslims did not know why they had come together. It's sort of like this mob. They didn't know why they were there. Anybody watch Crocodile Dundee? You watch that? Yeah. Uh, that's hilarious. What's the one? The, is it the? What's the, it's number two where he's got to go get her out of that mansion? Remember? I don't know if you remember that, but he goes and gets the gangs and they, a gang of um, in the in, that uh, bad bad Leroy Brown knows, and they're driving out to go rescue his girlfriend, and they're picking up all kinds of people along the way. You know, they're thinking this is a massive party. So they get in this huge crowd of people. Hey, what are we doing here? I don't know. It looks like a great party, you know. And that's sort of what you have happening here. You have a whole bunch of people in this amphitheater. You see the crowds going that way, and they're just sort of drawn along, and they don't know what's going on. You know, they, they have no idea. It's, it's total mass confusion. But it's led by this Demetrius who wants to run Paul out of town. Because he's starting to hit the trade. He's starting to hit the tax revenues and starting to hurt the, the city. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews pulling pulling him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. They didn't even want to listen to this guy. They didn't even want to listen to him. You've got a full-fledged you know, controlled riot on your hands. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? This was a meteorite that they had found. And they thought it come down from Zeus, of course, because it fell out of the sky. This is a rock. It's a meteor rock that they worshipped. What? 
Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, from the gods. Wow. You know. Well, you know, if you're back then, you didn't know what you know now, you probably would have done the same thing. You know. Um, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rationally. You see, and what are you so upset about? Everybody knows that this is the temple of the great goddess Diana. Everybody knows that we're the protector of it. Everybody knows that the rock came down. So what are you all upset about? He's trying to get them to quiet down and be reasonable. For you have brought these men who are neither robbers of temple nor blasphemers of your goddess. What's a robber of a temple? Hmm? Yeah. And he said they didn't do that. Um, they, they didn't blaspheme Diana. They didn't say anything against Diana, evidently. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. You want to do this, take it to the court. Don't cause a riot. Why is the city clerk doing this? Job depends on keeping. Yeah, you got to keep the peace. Because if it comes out that this is a riot, he loses his job. And the Romans, again, don't like riots. They get very nervous when there's any kind of disturbance going on. Well, at this time, the Christians still considered a sect. Yeah. The Jews. Right. Okay. Yeah. They weren't on their own yet. No. No. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's author. What does it mean to be called into question? Well, the Romans are going to ask, what's going on? There being no reason which we may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the guy comes in, he finally was able to get them to calm down. What you see here is you see the, you know, the mob mentality that Demetrius was able to stir up here. And the reason he stirred it up, because evidently the cells were, stating a, were taking a, a distinct hit. They're taking a distinct hit. And you see the power of the gospel being spread. Okay. And after the uproar ceased, Paul called the disciples himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So he's in Ephesus, and he's making his trip over to where? Macedonia. Macedonia. Now when he'd gone over to that region, encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece, stayed there three months. Which Greece? What part of Greece? Probably the Achaia part, right? Who's he visiting there? Well, probably the church at Corinth, right? The Bereans, the Corinthians. That's who's in Greece, right? Maybe there's a church in Athens. And when the Jews plied against him, he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So what was he going to do? Well, he's in Ephesus, and he's, he made his way over to Macedonia, went down to Achaia, and then he was going to sail back to Syria. But he found out there was a plot, so what did he do? He went back through Macedonia. And so Papater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Who are these guys? 
Well, they're part of his ministry team, right? They're part of his ministry team. Some of these guys we read of later on, right? Timothy. How about Tychicus? No, Tychicus is a different one. He's the one that would say, I left Tychicus at my lead is sick. Was it Tychicus or Trophimus? One of them. Um, but these are probably men. And, and notice where they're from here. You've got, you've got one from Thessalonica. You've got one from Derby. Where's Derby? That's next to Lystra, right? Timothy's from Lystra. Um, these are his traveling companions. They helped him in his ministry. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but when we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and five days joined them at Troas, Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now we got the we passage, right? Notice what it says here. Verse 2, when he had gone over, he came to Greece. All right. And as he was to sail, he decided to return through Macedonia. And then where did he pick up Luke? Well, somewhere in Macedonia he picked up with Luke, right? Because in verse 5, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So if there was anybody sort of needed a doctor to go along with him, it was probably Paul, right? <laughs> Get beat up all the time, you know? Helpful to have somebody. Then he was at Troas. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, and continued his message until midnight. So he started speaking, and he was going until the middle of the night. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. <laughs> Somebody went to sleep in Paul's... One of Paul's sermons. Well, you know, it's the middle of the night, right? It's warm. Lamp's going. And you have, the, you know, this guy droning on and on and on and on. Paul went down, found him, embraced him, and said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Um, this is the story of Eutychus, of course, who fell out of the window. They thought he was dead. Paul says, no, he's not. But how long did Paul preach or speak? Till daybreak. All night. All night. Was that the only incident of him raising somebody from the dead, Paul? He didn't do it to Peter. Peter did it twice. Peter did it twice. Peter was with Dorcas. And with a little girl. Then there was Paul. I think this is the only one with Paul. All right. But um, one of the interesting things you see here is that um, it, you know, just, just stepping aside, our culture is so much different than the culture back then in a sense that if the pastor's preaching at 12.15, what's everybody doing? You know, I'm going to burn dinner. You know, he's done by now. You know, the roast is going to be burnt by, if I don't get home by one, the roast is burnt. Um, we are a very time-driven society. You know, things start on time, they end on time. 
you know, and, and there, there are benefits to that, of course. We have our little watches. We could, by the way, I've not worn a watch in years. We have our little watches. Which is um, over the down in three hours. It's not that you need to listen to me. That's not the point. Yes, but not. But even our Sunday schools, there's not a lot. Is that the way it is in your churches? I mean, you know, you, you have a concert. Everybody, everybody shows up. I mean, stop, stop and think about it. Um, television back then. You know, they, yeah, they were lucky. They didn't have TV. They didn't have, you know, and one of the difficult things that we have nowadays is is when it comes to things of the, of the Word of God, people are used to, you know, special effects on TV. You know, they're used to, you know, going to the movies. You know, and to actually come and listen to some guy drone on from a pulpit is more than most people can handle. They're not used to that. They're not used to engaging their mind. Well, part of the reason for that, too, though, wasn't it also at that time where the everyday average person didn't have the written word or anything? All they had was people on the teaching. Well, today you people have the written word and they still don't read it. Today, right. You know. But I mean, that would be one reason 
back then, 2,000 years ago, why people would be so interested because that would be their only only interaction. Well, you know, but when I was a child, it wasn't like that. No, in the 40s, it's like we had a circuit preacher who came once a month. Everybody went to church and you stayed to whenever. Mm -hmm. And it, but we didn't have this instant society where you're having 10 minutes of a TV show and then five minutes of a commercial where you're used to getting things in these bits. And everything <coughs> was hurry, hurry, hurry. Back then it wasn't. The church was the center of the community too. There was, um, that's where you met people, where you saw people. People couldn't go all the time. Uh, nothing was open as far as stores and stuff on right. Sunday. You had no TV. You had radio, but that was iffy sometimes. And But our society has led to that, and that's probably been in the last 25 years. I've seen a real change, you know, with music videos and things like that. I mean, you know, and, and again, there's nothing wrong necessarily with the entertainment, but what's happened is, is that Culturally, as Christians, we've allowed it to leak in so that to, to actually get somebody to sit down and study the Bible is a tough deal because there's there's no video. Nobody wants to take the time to do that. You know, now if you could put it to a music video, everybody watch it. But, you know, it, it's, it's trying to get people to engage their mind and think. All right. And and you go back a few, you know, you go back a couple hundred years. You know, the, 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 the education of those who got an education was considerably higher than the equivalent person today. You know, when, when you, you know, you, you might have graduated from the university at 18 years old in the 1600s, but you could read five languages. Now compare that to the average person graduating from high school that can't even read English. You know, back then people took, you know, they understood literature, they understood thought, they were able to think, reason, you know, articulate. Now, most people can't do that because of our society. You know, we, we've been, you know, and, and the difficulty, the, the thing that's difficult in churches and the struggle, and which caused a lot of the seeker-sensitive, I think, um, explosion, is you're dealing with people out in the world that can't handle things. The idea of having them sit down and listen to somebody for 45 minutes to actually explain the text of the of the Bible is it, they they can't relate to that. So what do you do? Do you cater to them? Do you water it down? No, you don't. Did anybody hear Josh McDowell say? He he was on um, some program and he was talking about uh, high school at MBU. And explaining how since since the 60s and the 70s, how the percentage of youth out there that claim to be Christians and then also claim that there's no absolute truth, how that number has been going, you know, crazy mm -hmm. it's down to four percent. The problem. And he says we're losing unless we do something. The problem is the values of the world have taken over Christianity. Mm -hmm. That's not not every Christian. But generally, Christianity, we've bought into the values of the world. Yeah. We've bought into that. We've bought into the thinking so maybe, of the world. Maybe the Amish and other groups like that haven't been, had the wrong idea after all. 
I mean, I, I, I've known, I've, I, I would go down to the Amish country quite often, and there are some solid Christians down there who were part of the Amish community and left it because they, they're too religious. Mm -hmm. they, they, some of them actually believe that their reversion to the old ways is their salvation. And uh, so I, they're, they're legalistic in their own yeah. way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I understand. I was just trying to make yeah. a point, though. You know, their fact of being out of the world or apart from the world, you know. Uh, you can tell by their lifestyle what they are. Right. I also, also the other issue that, that comes into play here, that we're talking about this, is I've been around long enough now, I hate to say that, I feel like an old guy, but I'm not compared to some of you. But I've been around long enough. <laughs> I've been around long enough to see what I what I think is is a, is a general dumbing down of Christianity. People people are dumber, but <laughs> you know I'd say that jokingly. But but in in the churches, people, you know, when I was growing up, you knew the Bible stories. I knew all the Bible stories. Today, there are people you run into. They have no idea who Daniel is. I was talking to a certain gal on a church from the North Coast here um, who did not know who David was. She did not know who Aaron was. She didn't know who Moses was. And I said, well, how long have you been going to church there? Oh, about 11 years. It's like, so you can go to a church 11 years and have no idea. But so many churches only teach from the New Testament. They don't even touch it. The they don't even touch it. You know, and and. You know, I've seen this over the years as I've taught Moody classes that, you know, I'll say, well, remember when Elijah did this? And everybody just, their, their eyes are glazed over. They don't know who Elijah is. You know, these are people who have been in churches. You know, they don't know. They don't know that. And, and that's, I think, the, what, it's, what it's come from is our culture. There are so many distractions in our culture that people don't have time to think anymore. They don't have time to just think about things. One of the things I love about playing golf and that by myself, so I can cheat. No, <laughs> no. What I like about playing is I, I, I have time to think. You know, you can get away from things and you can think and ponder and meditate. And I, I think there's a value to that as believers. You know, most people, they, their lives are full of noise. If the TV's not going, the radio's going. You know, or something. Um, their their lives are full of noise, and they actually just sit down on the back porch for an hour and just think about something. Most people, they got to have a TV show. They got to they got to be. They can't do that. And those days were different. You know, here's a man, Paul, who came in and probably for a good eight to ten hours here, taught through the night. Try that at your church. Yeah. Now, you know, you have revival services at church and everybody wants to go home. You know, now, of course, you got to understand we live in a different age where people have to get up and work and go to go to work. It's a little different. Yeah. But see, that's that's part of our problem in our society. You know, and as believers, you know, that you need to come apart and spend time with God. And and what you have to see here is people who wanted to hear Paul. They wanted to be taught the things of the Word of God. They wanted to learn it. There was a thirst and a hunger for the Word of God. 
and the word of God's a little bit different. If you don't eat food, you get hungry. If you don't eat the Bible, you get less hungry. You know, the longer you're out of the word, the less hunger you have for it. It's the opposite. The more you're in the word, the greater your hunger for the word. About six years ago, I had an opportunity to go on a retreat in a really far in Canada. When I got there, I didn't even know. I knew about the retreat because the way it's promoted and stuff. But it's a silent retreat. They teach you that you, you're, not, you're not able to talk to anyone, even the people you're with. You have to move. And uh, you're, you, you do that for two days. And then the final day, they read silent. You go through a lot of breaks. It's silent. They read your Bible. It was one of the most impacting experiences I've had in my Christian life because being quiet and listening to God, and then after every teaching, you just uh, you reflected. You, 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 you thought about what the scriptures were saying, and then they give you time to break, and then you're in a cabin, and it's kind of in a remote area. And you're with, I went with a group of guys that I knew, but they wouldn't let us be in the same bunk. You know, you had to go into the cabin and just even, you know, when you use the restroom or you shower or whatever, everything was silent. You know, and you're, you're eating, I mean, you ate like in like 10 minutes. I mean, you were in a room with people, but it was just so impactful to be still to know that God is God, you know, and, and how God can speak to you through the scriptures in a, in a brighter way when you're just quiet. It's my it was interesting. I um, a few years ago, I went to Northampton County, Pennsylvania, where my third great grandfather was born, and he grew up Pennsylvania Dutch. He came from Pennsylvania Dutch, and that's a big there. It's a big, um, you know, Mennonite type group over there. Um, Count Zinzendorf is where they trace their lineage back to. Madison down here is one of their one of their um, satellite communities. But I, my fifth great grandmother, when her husband died, she became part of the Mennonite. She didn't have any, she had three little kids. She became part of the Mennonite place there. And that's uh, George Whitfield houses there. Um, I don't know if you know George Whitfield, the great American evangelist. Um, that's where his house was. Um, they, in fact, I, I went, they have a museum in the George Whitfield house. So it's interesting to go there. But what was interesting, the reason I say it is it was uh, they have a nice little interesting museum there. And um, one of the things is they have uh, they have different displays. And one of them is they showed like the, um, uh, the the Sunday, what you did on a Sunday. Like, you know, what the schedule was for the Sunday. And it goes back to what he was saying there. So on Sunday, you weren't allowed to work. I mean, you, you were not allowed to work. It was a day that you were, you know, they had, they had you know, at this time you, you went to a service you had vespers, you had quiet time, you know, you came back in the evening, you know, they had a sermon or whatever, they sang hymns, you know, you had Bible reading for the day. I mean, it was a very rigid, you know, just drive you bananas, rigid military style um, kind of structure there. But you had time to think. You know, this is a day when, you know, you worked from sunup to sundown to eat. But they had a day set aside. For that period of time, that was the Lord's day. You weren't, you didn't, you couldn't go to a restaurant and eat. You couldn't go to the local mall. There was no malls, thank goodness, back then. But 
the society was structured around that quiet time. As Christians today, we've got our one of the dangers that we have is we, are, we have so much noise in our lives that if God did talk to us, we couldn't hear it. You have to turn the TV off, and you have to turn the radio off, and you have to turn off your iPod. Now you got satellite radio, and you know, you, you, if God did speak, you wouldn't hear it. Republican who made it to the kingdom? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I like that tape. <laughs> but um, you see, you see here a whole cultural difference. And I think one of the things that we need to really think about as Christians is um, to learn to turn off the television and to turn off the radio, you know, and to turn turn things off and be able to spend some time with God. It's important that you have that quiet time where there's no distractions and no nothing going on in your life. And now that you said that, and when I start to say, I don't turn on TV that often anyway. Let's get on verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, and there intended to take Paul on board, for he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when we met it, he met us at Asos, we took him on board, came to the Middleine, sailed from there, the next day came opposite Chios. Following day arrived at Samos, stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus. You'll have to pronounce all of these on the test. <laughs> For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He's trying to get back to Asia now. He's making his way back at the end of his third missionary journey. All right, he's going. He wants to go back to Asia. All right. I mean Jerusalem. Excuse me. He wants to get back. He's he's trying to hurry through there. Get back to Jerusalem. And and now now as an aside. Why was he trying to get back to Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Why else? Was he taking he had, the money? He got to take the money from the church. The gifts. He had a collection. We're going to find that when we study 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Is that he had a collection he was taking back to Jerusalem. All right. So he wanted to get back in time, you know, to dispense this. Okay. Now, Miletus, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, if you look at your map in the back, you can understand what's going on here. If you find Asia Minor, Miletus, if my memory serves me correctly, Miletus is just a little bit south of Ephesus. So he went by Ephesus 
all right, to go down by that Troas, Asos, Mytilene, Miletus, Snidus. They're all port cities on the west side of Asia Minor there, all right. So he wanted to go past, why did he want to go past Ephesus? Didn't have time to stay. Didn't have time to stay. And if he, he said, you know, if I go there, you know, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to, it's going to take me a long time to get out of that place, you know. And why is that? Well, he had spent three years of his ministry in Ephesus. That's a long time. All right. So, so he wanted to be at Jerusalem. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So instead of having everybody come down, he called for the elders of the church. Who are the elders? Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is one of the great passages in the scripture where, and we've hit it earlier on, where it talks about the elders of the church. Now, we know who the elders are. We know who the elders are from 1 Timothy. By the way, what church was Timothy in when 1 Timothy was written to him? Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. All right. Yeah. Um, so who are these elders? Were they the spiritual leaders of the church? Yeah. All right. And we know from First Timothy and from Titus that they were men. They were not women. All right. Um, it's not that God has any hates women or anything like that, but God is ordained. That just as the man is the head of the home, that the men are to be the leaders in the church. All right. That's the way God had ordained it. That's the way God wired things. Okay. And, um, you know, I know we live in a society where the, you say something like that, they're about ready to be hauled out and hung up on a pole. All right. Because that's not what our politically correct androgynous society wants us to think because immediately people say well you're, you're you're saying women are inferior no that's not the point that's never been the point the point is according to first timothy that the women are to learn in silence in the corporate assembly of the church the men are to be leaders why is that because god first created adam and then eve all right. Who was the head of the first home? Adam was. When when did the human race fall into sin? When Eve ate or Adam ate? When Adam ate. Why? He was the responsible party. That doesn't mean women are dumber or inferior or less intelligent. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with with God's order within a society. And within the church, that's that's the way God had ordered it. And any attempt, I, I want to say this, any attempt to violate that, I think, is, is, a, is a somewhat serious violation of Scripture. What do you do when men won't pray for me? You have to pray for one to show up. But you don't do nothing. You need a man to be the elder of the church. Yes. So I'm asking, like, even in the house, in the home. Got a lot of men who won't take it. Got a lot of men in church won't take it. They come mm -hmm. to church. I see it. Oh, believe me, I see it too. 
I said no, too. And what? And what? What they have done is they've abrogated. Yeah, what you're and you have a very valid, valid question. What do you do when men will not take the lead? Well, what do you? Let's let's toss that out. What do you think? Let's pick the home. What do you do as as a what should okay, you do? Man, what should we do? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying I'm not. I'm saying what would what would the scripture if, if we, say? After studying, after studying, after studying, that I found out if we would sit back as women, they would take the lead. They're so used to us. Once we take over, we just run with it, and so they let it. So if you would step back, they would take the lead. I had a situation like that, like she was like like Myrtle was saying. I had a situation like you were talking about, you know, this situation. Um, back in '89 or whatever, I started teaching the singles class at this church, and um, one of the things that I instituted at that point is, you know, we had our socials and that. I wanted, you know, devotional. I mean, we're church, right? You know, when you get together and have a social, that's fine, but have somebody get five or ten minutes. You don't need a Bible study, but. You know, at least have somebody pray and, and lead and, and maybe bring something out. And, and I said, you know, I want it to be a man. Well, you know, that's like throwing a golly Moses. You know, that's like throwing a stake into a, and a dog pound because I had 95 percent women and 5 percent men. I think they were men. They didn't act like it. But, you know, I mean, I had I had like four guys in the classroom, you know, and all the rest were women. And um, they were the strong-willed women, you know. You know, that's that's how they operated, you know. And I made I'm, you know, and I took a lot of heat for that from them. You know, like oh, you know, they're stupid. Their men are stupid. They won't do it. You know, you know. And then it was interesting because about a year later, I had a lot of those same women come up and say, you know, the best thing you ever did was to have the men do that because finally. They started to take the lead. Why do you have 95 percent? This, this right here tells me something about men leading. Because why do you have 95 percent women and 5 percent men? Because when women become divorced, and, or, or most of them were divorced. I had, I had a lot that were not divorced, but the bulk of them were divorced. Women tend to meet with other women. They're more sociable. Men, you know, go out and grunt at the moon or something like that for the most part. Yeah. Well, they do. I mean, stop and think about it. You know, it, men, men are much less apt to go to a church. You know, they'll go down to the bar. They'll go, you know, hunting with the guys, but they won't go to church. You know, that's... Well, I'm just saying that's that's the reality of the situation. Um, but but it, what it did, it, it forced the men to to do what they were supposed to do, and <laughs> most of the women were glad that they finally did. You know, but but I think the, the the danger here, the danger you need to be careful of, okay, is that you, you don't want to become so pragmatic that yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, but it ain't happening, so we're going to do our own thing. You know, that's not good either. You know, what you need to do is try to work towards a goal or a solution where the biblical pattern is met. And it may take you some time to do that. But one of the things I will tell you this, and, and Brenda's right, 
the, most men, you know, they'll go out and they'll, they'll beat up Andre the Giant. But they'll come home and their wife will look at them cross-eyed and they'll go run and hide in the corner. All right. I mean, I don't know what it is, but, you know, if, if you got a strong. No, you've got you've got a you've got a strong willed woman. Um, I had one one lady in my class. She would walk in the door and everybody would you could, she didn't even know what she was doing. She just walk in and she was in charge, you know, and it's like. I was, I would watch all the other women, you know, they would be, you know, doing their, and then this lady would walk in, all of a sudden they would just, everything would defer to her, you know. Um, I'm just saying the, the way God has ordained and designed and structured society, the home, the church, is that it functions best when the men are in charge, because that's the way God had designed it. God did not design a woman to run the house. That that's not where her 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 um yeah it's it's not where her strengths lie you know you, you know one of the the strongest therapeutic techniques in marital therapy or family therapy for dealing with an alcoholic or a passive man who can't hold a job is to have the, the wife and the kids go on strike <clears throat> have the wife sit down not do the laundry not cook a meal have the kids not go to school and sit there and look at the guy and say when you get ready to function we'll function. And the families I can get to do that, dramatic change. Some won't do it, but it's based on Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. who's one of the most powerful men. I just, told and, uh, just sit down, you don't do it. That's it. See, see. The, Wait for the leader, fill up the vacuum. I'm sorry, Bart, you were going to say something. No, I was, before when you were mentioning about women, then a couple of years ago they had a precept study here at Open Door, and I, I enrolled in it. There were about 33. And then it was an advanced precept study. I was the only male that enrolled in that. I mean, they're all women. Nobody wanted to. It seems like they don't step up or, yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, there was. The thing is, the thing is, as, as Christians, you, you look at Titus chapter 2. talks about the older men. What are they to do? They're to be grave, temperate. The older women, they're to be like them, not gossip, not, you know. And then it says. What, the younger men, what do they do? They are to treat the younger women with respect as a sister, all right? And they are, they are to respect their elders. And the younger women, they are to love their children and keep the home. And what do the older women do? They are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children and be pure keepers at home. And then it says there, it's interesting, when he says that the word of God be not blasphemed. Why is it that God's ordained these roles in a, in a society, in a family, so that the word of God is not blasphemed, maligned? All right. When, when you look at, I, I, I may have said it in here, when you look at Little House on the Prairie, what family do you want to be part of? The Ingalls or the Olsons? The Olsons, dysfunction. You want to have Nellie as a sister? Good night, you know. You want Mrs. Olson bossing you around? Oh, Nels. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, what family do you want? And and what you know, the popularity of that show was interesting. Is that you had the Ingalls family, which was the <clears throat> traditional family structure. Everybody wanted to be part of that. They were happy. You know, the family functioned right. Then you've got the Olsons, who had every problem in the world you could think of. You know. Yeah. And <laughs> folks, I'm just saying. 
you, you can't you can't say well I, I'm putting go back to Myrtle's um, observation there you can't say well because the men won't leave we're going to take over that's not a solution either that that may be a temporary stopgap measure but you need to get out of that as quickly as you can because if not you got a dysfunctional church okay so what do you do then? You pray and ask God to bring some guys along. And maybe you have to do what Seth said, go on a church strike. All the women stop doing anything. See what happens. Is it a church discipline thing? Can the women as members approach the men who aren't taking the leadership role? That you're in sin? They are. You're neglecting your duties? They are. And, you know, first face-to-face, face, second with two or three, and then third. I mean, I mean I'm not saying, you know, you're not going to walk in all of a sudden this Sunday, everything's different. But I'm saying what you need to work towards is the biblical model. You may not get there. You need to work towards it. You know, do this or that. Just let this. It doesn't necessarily mean that they all have to do that. At, at our house, my husband's the president, I'm the vice president, the secretary, the treasurer, but he is still the president. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do those things, but he oversees those things. And that's my job to do those. But but I know that doesn't work in every household, but there was a time when my husband didn't want to do it, but I did pay the bills. I let the checkbook sit there on the table with the bills. And then he paid them, and then we worked out the arrangement. But I realized that if you've got younger children, you have to teach the children what you can, but you don't go, you don't say anything about dad not doing it you know, not putting him down, but you don't do the things that he should do, but there's still a, what mom needs to do. Mom still needs to teach in the home. Mm -hmm. And as all of this is part of our society, though. When we were an agricultural society or a society where small businesses, the men took their boys with them all the time, they learned leadership. Then when the men went out to work, uh, mostly after World War II, you had mothers being head of all these sons all the time, catering to the sons, doing to them. They never learned to take leadership. Mm -hmm. It's a societal issue, mm -hmm. and 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 you know my only suggestion, my only my my strong suggestion, is to go back to Titus two, and really digest that passage and really understand this is what God has ordained the roles to be. So it's not right. like a pattern. Pardon? It's not like baptism or tithing. It's not just a pattern. It's actually no. It, it is. It is. It is when God. Ordained. Yeah. And, and and the way you know that you know there's a, there's a lot of people tried to dance and you know backflip and handsprings around what it says in Titus two or First Timothy two, but it says the man is the head of the woman because God first created Adam then Eve. All right. So where does that pattern go back to? Again, Creation. When and when was Eve created? Before or after the fall? Before. Because what happens is you got a lot of these people going around saying, "Well, that was only because of the fall. It's because of the fall that you had this, this, this issue here." But 
in the church, you know, when, when you have a man and woman who are born again, they go back to the pre-fall where there's egalitarian, egalitarianism, where they're two equals. Well, look, the Bible never says that Adam and Eve were, now, spiritually were they equal before God? Yes. Of value, of worth, of intelligence, are they equal? Sure. But in the, in the structure of the home, Adam was responsible. God hold, held Adam responsible for his home. God holds me responsible for my home. And God holds the men responsible for the leadership in the church. And if they shirk that responsibility, God holds them responsible. Now, you may have to, you know, stumble along as best you can, um, you know, just so it doesn't fall apart. It's like in a home, you know, if a man doesn't do his job in a home, does a woman just let the home fall apart? The woman let it fall apart and the kids go into foster care and, you know, that, you know, you, you might have a dysfunctional family is because of the fall, because of the situations we're in, but that's not God's ordained plan. And God's ordained plan in the church is the men are to be the elders. They are to lead. That's God's ordained plan. And any church or denomination that violates that is, I think, violating a serious um, command of Scripture. It's not merely a pattern, but the pattern goes back to the, 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 the creation ordinance, when God created man and woman, he created an order, a structure. All right. And, and generally, just generally, who is most easily deceived? Men. Women are. They are. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying because that's the way God is wired. That is the way. That is the way God, huh? Yeah, the, the way God is, or the, the way God, look folks, the way God has designed women is they don't want to lead. You know, a woman, a woman would love to have a husband who took care of her and provided the means whereby she could have a wonderful home and take care of the kids. That's what she wants. You, you think most women want to go out and get a career? No. Now, there's a bunch of nut jobs that do, but, but you know, most of the time, a woman doesn't want to do that. And God has or designed men, you know, if, if a man is not providing for his home, he's got all kinds of emotional problems come in, you know. Um, that's the way God has ordained it. That's the way God's designed it, you know. And, and in the church, Paul called for the elders of the church at uh, Ephesus. These were the men who were primarily responsible for the spiritual oversight and care of the church. Now, were there women who functioned in the church in leadership roles? Oh, yes. Absolutely there were. Um, uh, you go to Romans, for example, and Paul in Romans 16.1, he has the book of Romans taken to Cor or Rome by Phoebe, who was a servant. Well, who's Phoebe? Well, she was some person of, yeah, she was a trustworthy person in the church. It's not, it's not that every, every leadership function is done by a man necessarily. I, I want to put that. Um, spiritual leadership is designed to be done by the men. All right. But there are, yeah. But there, the, 
you're, you're preaching to the choir here, sister. You're preaching to the choir, sister. Yeah. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.